Hey guys, welcome to RUF. Um, my name is Sammy. I'm the campus minister here. And if you've been with us in the last couple of weeks, you know that we're doing a series that we're calling Don't Stop Believing, A Guide to the Christian Faith. And basically what we're doing week in and week out is we're taking a look, um, taking a look at phrases from the Apostles' Creed to sort of give us a vision or give us kind of the gist of what it means to be and live as a Christian. And tonight we're coming to that phrase, um, is, it, is that kind of loud? Okay. <laughs> we'll work with it. Uh, tonight we're coming to that phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And to look at that, I want to turn to a passage from the Gospel of John. As if you brought a Bible, you can turn there with me. Or if you want to look along, you can look at one of the pew Bibles. Um, we're looking at John 18. And tonight I want to look at John 18, verses 1 to 11. And this is a story um, right about where Judas betrays Jesus and Jesus is arrested. And it's a really interesting story for a lot of different reasons. But I just want you to see two things tonight from John 18. As we think about, essentially, what does it mean to call Jesus Lord? For Jesus to be the Lord, to be the center, to be the very, to be the very center of your heart and being in life. What does that mean? Look at John 18 with me, looking at verses 1 to 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kedron, where, he was, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Talking about his friends. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you, have, of those whom you gave me, I have lost no, uh, not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's pray one more time as we dive in uh, tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that it means to us. We thank you that it's a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And we thank you for what it tells us about your son, Jesus. And Lord, I pray tonight, um, Father, that you would uh, richly bless each of us who are here, that you would challenge us and that you would encourage us from your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, if I were to ask you the question, who is the greatest hymn writer of the 20th century? Uh, I wonder what you would say. Um, and I know what I would say, and it might surprise a couple of you, that by far, hands down, the greatest hymn writer of the 20th century is none other than Bob Dylan. Uh, Bob Dylan, especially in his sort of Christian phase, wrote some of the most profound songs that kind of talk about the truths of the gospel that you really can find. And one of those songs that has always stuck with me is a song that he wrote in the 80s uh, called You Gotta Serve Somebody. And just listen to what he says, because this song really gets at the gist of what we're saying. What does it mean to call Jesus your Lord? Here's what Dylan says. It's called, you got to serve somebody. And here's what he says. He says, you may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes in the side. 
You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress. You may be somebody's heir. But you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. But yes, sir, you're going to have to serve somebody. And what Dylan gets that I think that, that we're talking about tonight and thinking about tonight is this idea is that oftentimes we talk about, is Jesus your Lord? But it's almost better to put it the other way around and to, say, to ask you this question tonight, is your Lord Jesus? Because everybody, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whatever you consider yourselves, everybody that exists in the face of the planet, everyone, every single person in this room tonight has a Lord. We have something that is at the center of our lives that consumes us, that drives us, that we look to to give our life meaning and that we look to to give our life purpose and that we look to for answers and that we look to for comfort and that we look to for everything in life. We have something at the center. We have a Lord. And the question tonight that I'm asking is, is it Jesus or is it something else? Uh, Is your is Jesus, your Lord, or is your boyfriend or girlfriend at the center of your very being? Is your Lord Jesus or is your GPA what drives and consumes you? Is uh, Jesus your Lord or is what others think about you being noticed by them, being praised by them? Is that what drives you or consumes you? I don't know what, or, or is it simply following the lusts of your, of your desires? Is that what's at the center of what shapes you and drives you and consumes you? I don't know what your Lord is. But as I was thinking about this for myself, because we, we, whether you're a believer or not a believer, you struggle with this. You struggle for Jesus to be your Lord. And the question I was asking myself and the question we're going to look at tonight is, why am I afraid and why are you afraid for Jesus to be that Lord? Like, the Bible, here's what the Bible kind of says about this. On the one hand, it says, none of us makes Jesus Lord. Like, Scripture sort of says, He is the Lord. He is the one who is over all things. He is the one. He sits at the Father's right hand, and He is ruling over everything. If you ever read that terrifying passage in Revelation where it describes Jesus, and it's not like the sweet Jesus you grew up with in Sunday school where He's like holding a lamb, which is an incredible picture, and I love, and that you love. But if we're being honest, Jesus can be a little bit effeminate in some of those sort of you know, places. But Revelation kind of says he has bronze feet. That he has, it's like this kind of scary image, but he's got like lightning flashing from his eyes. And this sort of weirds us out a little bit. I've started to try to watch Battlestar Galactica um, because I'm, I guess, a nerd at heart. Um, but we have this sort of weird view of Jesus. But scripture is kind of trying to say that he is, he is the Lord. But why are you and I afraid for him to be the Lord of our lives? Let me ask it to you a different way. Why are you afraid to let Jesus control everything in your life? If I were to say tonight, you were going to walk out of here and Jesus gets to call, he gets to call all the shots from here on out. He gets to tell you what to do. He's completely in control. Does that scare you or does that comfort you? If you're being honest, you're like me, it, 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 it bothers me because I want to be in control. I want to have a say. Why are you and I afraid? And there are two things I want to talk about that I think typically when we talk about why are we afraid to, to, to let Jesus be the Lord, to make him the Lord, for him to be at the center of our being is two things. Two things I want to talk about. And, and I'm going to call them, on the one hand, we have some of us have intellectual objections, and on the other hand, some of us have personal distractions. So when we're coming to this question, why am I afraid? Why are you afraid? Some of us have intellectual objections. There are things about Jesus or Christianity that we disagree with. 
that we don't understand, that we're trying to wrap our minds around. But then some of us have what I'm going to call personal distractions. We, something else has gotten into that center. Something else has, has replaced Jesus and has become the center on which we focus our lives. So let's do two of those tonight. First, let's think about intellectual objections. That This is part of what keeps you, that keeps Jesus from being the Lord of your life. And here's, uh, there, I just want, there are so many that I could deal with, but I just want to deal with two tonight. Intellectual objections that I think that um, you have and I have. Here's the first. And it's simply this. Is that we can't really know Him. We, we can't really know God. At the end of the day, all Jesus is about, all Christianity is about, is this idea of sort of groping in the dark toward God. But if we're being honest, it's no different than all the other religions where we're groping around in the dark, but not, we don't get anywhere. Because God has not let himself be known finally and fully. And so we have this objection. We think, okay, we can't really know him. Um, therefore, why even try? Why try to follow him? Why try to, to love him? Why try to serve him? Another way of saying that it's our culture would kind of say it's okay for Jesus to be a Lord, but it's not okay for him to be the Lord. It's okay for him to be a way, but it's not okay for him to be the way. Uh, I've started watching, um, I, watch I guess the theme of RUF is that I watch a lot of TV shows because we talked about this last week, but I've also, we've, uh, my wife and I have started watching Game of Thrones. But this is like a Game of Thrones moment. You remember when, there, when uh, Tyrion, the, the little guy, goes before the court? And, uh, you know, when they're talking about um, uh, he's, he's in a trial, essentially, and, and the woman who's sort of sitting over him, judging him, says, let your gods and my gods decide between you. And so this idea that we all have these old gods, you can have your god, I can have my god, but don't you dare try to make your god my god. Don't you dare try to push or tell me Anything final or anything full about who God is. Um, and so this idea that we, we, we would prefer something else, and this is a term that I've come across recently, that we would prefer something that is called enchanted agnosticism. Uh, Kurt Schneider is the guy that sort of, this is a term that's new to me, but I think this is, actually hits a lot of where we are. Here's what he says. He says, by enchanted agnosticism, I mean bedazzled uncertainty exhilarated discernment and enraptured curiosity to put all this in philosophical terms I mean our existential faith in the inscrutable the unknowable enchanted agnostics believe that behind every institutionalized religion is a transcendent question but what is beyond that and listen to what he says beyond every bounded God resides an expanding indecipherable God in other words, what he's saying, enchanted agnosticism, which is, I think, what a lot of us prefer, what a lot of us are swimming in, is this idea is we can't really know. So if you claim to know, then you're arrogant. If you claim that you know, then you're narrow-minded, that at best you're dumb. Recently, it was interesting, I was listening to Jim Gaffigan on a podcast, and interestingly enough, he's, he considers himself a Catholic, he considers himself a Christian, and he says that one of the things that's interesting to him is he, he very rarely shares that. But when he shares it on this podcast, he immediately said, part of what's so weird about this today that we live in is that to call yourself a Christian, you immediately feel dumb. Because it's almost our culture kind of says, if you believe that, what's wrong with you? And so we prefer this to chain of agnosticism. Maybe you've heard this illustration that kind of is exactly what it's about. And maybe you've heard it put this way. 
Have you ever heard the illustration that talks about religion and it talks about it as blindfolded men approaching this elephant, right? And so here are these, all these blindfolded men and they can't see, but say one, one of the men comes and he grabs the tail of the elephant and he grabs it and he says, this is what the elephant is like. And another man, he's blindfolded and he can't see, but he grabs the trunk and he says, no, 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 this is what an elephant like, is like and he describes it. And that's what people say, that's what religion is like. One, you know, Buddhism is grabbing the tail and saying, this is what God is like. And Christianity is grabbing the trunk and saying, this is what God is like. But the reality is, none of us really see the elephant. None of us really has the full view of the elephant. And that would be right. If. If. God had not made himself known through his son. Because my question is, what if the elephant came to us? What if the elephant, just, just embrace this illustration, right? It's not the most perfect illustration in the world. But what if the elephant comes and, and says, let's put it this way. What if God became man and said, know me, listen to me. This is what I'm like. This is who I am. And that's what, that's what Christianity says, Jesus says. That's, that's, that's what we call in football a game changer, Right? But here's the second thing. So we don't, we don't, we, we, on the one hand, our objection is, we, can we really know God? And the, that's right to say, if, if God has not made himself known, then we can't. But if God has made himself known, and that's what Christianity claims, it, is through his son that he has said, this is what I'm like. Watch me, listen to me, know me. But on the other hand, here's the other objection, is, is we really, here's the objection, is we really don't like some of the things Jesus says. So if on the one hand our objection is, can we really know God? On the other hand our objection is, do we, I don't really like some of the things Jesus is about. So on the one hand we've grown up around Christianity or we've read part of the Bible and so we say, okay, I like this, I like this idea of heaven. That is an incredible idea. You're telling me that like, if I believe in Jesus that I'm going to this place and I'm going to be with my friends forever and it's going to be amazing. But we don't like what Jesus has to say about hell. Or another way, a more simple way of putting it is we like the things often that make us feel good about ourselves, but we don't like the things that make us feel bad about ourselves. Um, here's the way that I think about it. Is sometimes I think when you and I think about Jesus and what he said and what he did, there are part, you know what I'm talking about? There, there are certain things in the Bible that you wish Jesus had not said. Like, are you with me on this? Like, there are certain places where you come to you're like, ooh, it would have been nice if maybe Jesus had reworded that one. Or like, oh... It would have been cool if Jesus had maybe like left that one out. And so I think when I've been thinking about this, I think sometimes you and I want a greatest hits Jesus, not a, a deep tracks Jesus. Do you know what I mean by that? So you've got your favorite band, say you've, you've gotten in a little bit to, let's say, Rolling Stones. And you and I, some of our disposition is to go and buy the greatest hits and find like, okay, we're just going to listen to the top tracks. You know, we're going to listen to like Start Me Up, Classic. We're going to listen to I Can't Get No Satisfaction, classic. But then the deep tracks are like, oh, we're going to skip over that one. <laughs> that one. That one would not be played at williams Bryce. Like that one would not make the cut at a football game where we're going to just breeze past that one. And I think sometimes that's what you and I want to do with Jesus and, and, and what he says to us is sort of say, I like this part, but I don't like this part. And that's what a lot of us have done. We've said, I like the part about Jesus being this incredibly kind man who is a great teacher, but the part where he claims to be God, that's weird. Or I like the part where Jesus talks about helping people and he's like helping all these people, 
But the part where he talks about laying down his life at the cross for sinners and being a savior, that part is weird. Um, here's the way that no one put this better, surprise, surprise, than C.S. Lewis. And listen to the way C.S. Lewis put it. I'm just going to read it for us. You've maybe heard this before, but just track with me. So here's the way Lewis said it. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. And it's this, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But listen to what he says. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And this is the first thing that I want you to see. If you're tracking with me, this is the first thing I want you to see about this passage. And it's that little, it's that little part that's really kind of weird. Did you catch it? So here's Judas, and he's brought this band of soldiers. And, and they've come and said, where is Jesus? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, did you see what he says? He said, I am he. And do you see what happened? This is a really weird part. It says, this sol- like soldiers... Men who, were, who had killed people. Like if you've killed a person, there's not much you're afraid of. But men, these seasoned men who had killed people and who had gone to war, it says that they drew back and fell to the ground when Jesus said it. And so you and I are left wondering, if you're looking at it, what in the world is happening here? And here's what you've got to see. It's connected to everything that I'm saying. Here's what you've got to see. Here is this man, Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter's son. And in this brief moment... He does something that so, that so terrifies these soldiers that they literally fall to the ground in sheer terror and in sheer awe. And what Jesus does in this one moment is, he, I can't put it another way, he flexes. It would not be very impressive <laughs> if, I, if I tried to do that for you right now. But in this moment, Jesus, he, he pulls back the curtain And he says, that's why he says, I am he. If you were a religious leader, if you were Judas, you knew exactly what he was doing. He was taking the divine name, Yahweh, which Jews shuddered to even pronounce. And he's taking it to himself. And he's saying, I am the son of God. One with the father and one with the spirit. And in this one moment, he flexes and they, they, these soldiers, like gladiators, like Russell Crowe's fall to the ground. Jesus makes Russell Crowe look dumb. <laughs> if you learned anything from RF tonight, they fall to the ground. It's like when Aslan, if you're a Narnia guy, it's like when Aslan roars and all of Narnia shudders in both terror and fear and awe. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, this is, this is who I am. I'm not a mere man. I'm the son of God. But there's second, so some of you have intellectual objections. And what I'm, what I'm sort of saying, that you've, what you've got to do is you have to deal with Jesus intellectually. 
you, you, you have to deal with his claims. You have to deal with his claim to the resurrection. Listen, the resurrection is either deal. Paul says the resurrection is deal or no deal. You've got to do something with him. You can't just sort of dismiss him as a joke. You can't just dismiss him as religious baggage. You've got to deal with him thoughtfully. If you're going to have any intellectual integrity, you've got to deal with Jesus. But here's the second thing, and here's what's going to hit home for a lot more of you. Because this is the thing for a lot of us who would call ourselves Christians. This is the thing that, where a lot more of us are. Is we don't necessarily have intellectual objections, but we do have what I'm going to call personal distractions. And here's what I mean by this. Is some of us are less like the religious leaders where we've got these objections, and some of us are much more like Judas. Where it's not that we have objections, but instead what we have is something else has replaced Jesus. There's something that we love more than him. And for Judas, it's money. Judas, sell, Judas literally gets frustrated with Jesus. He's giving his money and it's being wasted. And he gets frustrated and he says, I'm going to sell Jesus and I'm going to sell him for you know, 30 pieces of silver. And something else becomes his Lord. Now, you and I typically go two ways with this, okay? Here's the way that this happens for us. Being personally distracted from Jesus being at the center of our lives, we go two ways. On the one hand, some of us are afraid. We're deeply, deeply afraid for Jesus to be at the center instead of at the periphery. So maybe you're that person who you've moved. Remember that first week you've moved from Christianity has become something that you believe, that, that, that you've moved more to believing in Jesus, and Jesus is sort of calling you and he's wooing you, and you're wrestling with him, but you're afraid. Because your whole life he's been at the periphery and he's never been at the center. And you're afraid, and I could, we could say you're afraid of a lot of things, but let's say you're afraid of two things. Some of you are deeply afraid that Jesus is going to come into the center of your life and he's going to kill your fun. But that Jesus is the great sort of cosmic killjoy, right? Jesus is the one who sort of comes in and he's the ultimate, he just, crash, he just crashes and like just stops the party. He just, if you're having fun... Boom, no, that's not what I'm about. I want your life to be boring and I want your life to be just, you know, sort of not any fun at all. And that's sort of your view of Jesus. And in the same way, we would say, you need a bigger view of Jesus. You need a better, you need a more biblical view of Jesus. Because do you remember Jesus' first miracle? He turns water into the finest wine. Another way of saying it is Jesus doesn't come to stop the party. Jesus comes to bring a better party. It's the party of his kingdom. And actually living, if you, have you ever been, it's the party of him making all things new. Have you ever been part, maybe, maybe as I know some of you have, have you ever been part of seeing Jesus make someone you know new? Because nothing is more fun than that. All of the beer pong in the world is not more fun than that. All of the whatever your fun is in the world is not more fun than seeing Jesus make someone new. But some of you are afraid of something else. Some of you are afraid that not he's, going to, he's not going to kill your fun, but that he's going to kill your cool. That you're afraid for him to move from the periphery to the center because you're afraid, what will my friends think? What will my family think? If, Jesus, if, if I all of a sudden show up at Thanksgiving and I'm talking about Jesus, or if I show up you know, and, like, and I'm reading my Bible and my roommate walks in or my, you know, if my fraternity brother or my shorty sister walks in and I'm reading my Bible, what are they going to think of me? Or if I go somewhere and actually act like a Christian, what are they going to think of me? Is it going to be, you know, am I going to, is he going to kill my cool? Is he going to kill everything that, that are, 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 you know, USC says is cool? Um, Chuck Klosterman, for me, works this out in a beautiful way. Klosterman basically says that what is the desire to be cool? That ultimately he says that the desire to be cool is ultimately the desire to be saved. Because think about it. 
What drives us to want to be cool is this. Listen to me for a second. Here's what drives us to want to be cool. Is I'm terrified that if you really knew me, that you would actually like me. I am terrified that if you knew the real me, that you would not want to be my friend, that you would not love me, that you would not like me, that you would want to defriend me on Facebook, that you would want to unfollow me on Twitter, that you would not want to be around me. And that's what drives us, is it not? Is that not, is that not what drives you when you, go, when you go to, I don't really know where you, you know, wherever you go to shop for clothes. I don't know whether that's Target or whether it's J. Crew or whether it's Forever 21 or whether it's wherever it is. But is that not what, like, we, we're, we're, we're trying to put on the appearance so that you will like me even though you don't know the real me? And here's what's cooler about Jesus. Is that Jesus, know, this is the gospel, Jesus knows the real you. He knows you and all of your flaws. He knows you and all of your mess. And he loves you. And he likes you. And he wants to be near you. And he thinks you're cool. Do you believe that? Is that your view of Jesus? That he likes you and he loves you and he knows you. Because you have friends that they like you and they love you, but they don't really know you. But Jesus does. And he says, I'm not afraid to call you mine. I'm not afraid to say, you're you're the one I love. You're the one I want. So first, some of us are afraid that we're afraid for Jesus to move from the periphery to the center. But second, think with me quickly. For some of us, it's a different story. He's moved from the center to the periphery, and something else has replaced him. Something else has, has taken him from the center. Something else has replaced him at the center. The other day, I went to breakfast with a friend, and um, and we were uh, we were eating over breakfast. And he said to me, "It was the most simple thing, but it was a it was a powerful reminder." He said, "Sammy, he said the reality is when I if I don't every day remind myself that Jesus is the center, then something else inevitably has to replace him." Like if I don't make at some level every day to remind myself that Jesus is the Lord of my life, then inevitably something else is going to creep in and something else is going to get into the center and something else is going to become the Lord that drives me and consumes me. And again, we can go two ways with this. Let's go the, the obvious way. Does Here's a hard question. Does the person you're dating... Do they point you to Jesus in a beautiful, humble, enriching your life way? Or do they replace him? Or let me ask a bigger question, because maybe you're thinking, I don't know what that is for me. Let me ask you this question. How does the way that you spend your free time, how does the way that you spend your free time, what does the way you spend your free time say about what you really love and what your heart is really drawn to? And what your life is really about. Is it Jesus? Or is it something else? I can ask it a different way. Is there anything in your life? This this has been the challenging question for me. Is there anything in your life that isn't about you, but that is about Jesus? Those are some hard questions for us to answer. But here's the point. And on the one hand, if you've got to deal with Jesus, if Jesus is saying in the first point, you've got objections, but at the end of the day, you've got to deal with his claims about who he says he is and what he said he's come to do. Here's the point here. Is that Jesus, here's the way I'm going to put it. Is Jesus is not content to stay in the friend zone with you. 
Jesus is not okay with being in the friend zone. You've either got to marry him or break up. You've either, he's, you've either got to marry him or break up. Marry him or take off the ring. I always like the way that William Cooper put it. William Cooper was this great, speaking of hymn writers, um, he was an incredible one. He, he struggled a lot with depression, but he has this hymn, and here's what he says. Because this is, should be my prayer. And this should, you, If you claim to know Jesus, you claim that Jesus, yes, Jesus is the, my Savior, Jesus is my Lord. Here's my prayer, and here's your prayer, and it's a daily prayer, and here it is. The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee because here's the thing and this is the most beautiful thing about jesus that you have to see is that jesus is the only lord who when you find him can truly satisfy you and yet when you fail him can truly forgive you he is the only lord that when you find him he will deeply and truly satisfy you in every way that you were meant to be satisfied and he's the only lord who can forgive you because here's the reality is your boyfriend or girlfriend didn't die for your sons Your GPA didn't die for your sons. Girls and guys on a computer screen didn't die for your sons. Cheeseburgers and french fries didn't die for your sons. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Jesus is the only person who died for your sons. And this is the moment if we were in a Reese Witherspoon movie... Reese Witherspoon seems to do a lot of movies where she's choosing between two guys. This is the moment where we would be saying, we would be looking at ourselves as Reese Witherspoon, and we'd be saying, choose him. Choose Jesus, because Jesus is the one who really loves you. Jesus is the only one who deeply knows you and loves you. Jesus, please choose Jesus, please. He's the one who knows you and loves you. I'll close with this. There's um, Flannery O'Connor in a lot of ways perfectly sums up everything for me. And if you've ever read her um, story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, and there's a way that the misfit, if you ever read that story, you remember the misfit's this very, very evil character, but at the end, he's about to kill the grandmother and the family, but he has that chilling line that sums up everything that I could ever want to say and more to you about the sermon of Jesus. And here's what he says. I'm going to close with this. He says simply this. He says, Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead. he thrown everything off balance. Listen what he says. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can. Let's pray. Jesus, as we wrestle with these questions and we wrestle with whatever it is, whatever idols that have torn you from uh, your throne, or that you would meet us in your grace, Lord, we thank you that some of us are afraid to come to you because we, we know that we have failed you. And um, Lord, we thank you that you are not only a Lord who can forgive us, but you are a Lord who loves to forgive us. That you say that you delight in mercy and you delight in steadfast love. And for those of us who feel a sense of shame and guilt, Lord, I pray that you would free us, that you would help us to come and confess and know that we will be met with nothing but sheer grace and sheer mercy. Lord, we thank you and we love you. We praise you for this time tonight. We pray these things in your name. Amen.